the underlying narrative that drives both dysfunctional parties is American exception. And so that is really antithetical to the gospel. Uh, the belief that a, a single nation in this day and age can be the chosen nation when the scriptures only testify to Israel as a chosen nation, and that, you know, arguably is for that time period within the scriptures, uh, there's actually zero indication, zero uh, uh, idea that America, the United States of America, is the exceptional chosen nation of God. But again, these narratives have played itself out in so many ways that it doesn't matter what party you belong to, the idea of American exceptionalism is going to find its way into the rhetoric. Though I have nothing, my life is an offering. I lay me down. Steady my heart, Lord. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is episode 305. That's an insane number. Welcome to the show. I'm glad that you're here. I want to quickly make an appeal to your support of the show. The holidays are coming. Consider supporting the show. You can do that one of a handful of ways. The free, cheap, easy way is just rate and review the show on iTunes. Algorithms run the entire world. Facebook, Google, email, shoot your computer, and what happens when you turn on the blinker? All algorithms. And so one way that you can help other people find shows like this one or this one is just hit pause go to rate and review click an amount of stars really your choice anywhere from one to five but then type some comments there like say something about the show what do you like what do you hate i would greatly appreciate it that is one simple and easy way to support the show the other two ways are really easy so you can either support the show on patreon and there are multiple levels there you can start at a dollar a month and go up to crazy amounts if you want to and i won't stop you but that is the way that the show continues to be a show so as can i say this at church grows it just costs more money and which is insane and and thus far because of supporters on patreon that has been able to happen and i am so thankful so very thankful for each and every single one of you and so I would like to count a few more of you among there. And so I would ask, consider supporting the show either at patreon.com slash can I say that to church or go into your show notes and partner with a new service called Glow. Uh, and it works slightly different for a different reason and a different purpose. And then again, as the holidays are approaching, there is the store at can I say this at church.com slash store. Some fun things in there. But if there's something there that you're like, yeah, I would, I would rock that. Click that. Hit the button. Ships everywhere on the planet. Let me know what you think of it. So some caveats for today's conversation. I spoke with Professor Sung Chong Ra, who co-wrote a book with Mark Charles. The book is deeply gripping. Entirely, for me, I think abrasive is the correct word, and worth every single moment that it took to read it, and, and I may reread it again. And so that book is called Unsettling Truths, which is about the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. So I'll hit pause there. Way back in like February of 2018, I talked with Mark about the doctrine of discovery. And so I would maybe hit pause right now and go back and listen to that one. It's going to give you some context. And I tell you why. Mark, because he's running for president, was unable to join the show, even though I tried my best to make it work. We just couldn't do it uh, with the three different schedules. And so I have Professor Sung Chan Ra you're going to hear us talking on an old school telephone. And so the audio quality is slightly less than what we normally have, but the content is fantastic. It's challenging. It's needed. So here we go. 
conversation about unsettling truths, America, the church, trauma, so many different topics with Professor Soong Chan Ra. Professor Soon Chan Ra. So there's like seven or eight people that have been on the show twice. There's even a fewer number that have been on the show more than twice. And so I'm excited to welcome you back to the show. Yours is one of my favorite episodes on American exceptionalism because I think it's a timely message regardless of the year, sadly enough, uh, that we did back in the day. And and I think a lot of what we talked about there will shed some light on, on what we'll talk about today on unsettling truths in America and as we break that apart again. But I'm really looking forward to the conversation and welcome back to the show. Very glad to get back on. You and another past guest of the show, Mark Charles, wrote a book called Unsettling Truths, which and then has a large subtitle, The Ongoing Dehumanizing <laughs> Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. And so I want to preface for those listening, I normally have the guests say a bit about themselves and kind of their upbringing, but we've done that already in the prior episode. And so we won't waste those 10 minutes. We will we'll use those a little bit more wisely today. But it is important, I think, uh, as a framework for the conversation. And, and so those that are listening should probably go back and hear that. But real quickly, what do you mean when you say unsettling truths? Yeah, you know, um, as, as you probably know, many of the book titles go under multiple trans- transitions and changes. And originally, the working title, when we were working through the book itself, the, the title was Truth Be Told. And um, part of the reason we never went with that title is there's like four other books by that same title. So hmm. that felt a little redundant. <laughs> um, but the idea, the central theme of that was uh, what is what are some truths out there that are truth that is out there uh, in our history and especially around our stories around kind of American identity and American politics that we, uh, and even the American church, that we just tend not to talk about. And so the central word that obviously in both titles was the idea of a truth that needed to be told, a truth that needed to be revealed, and a truth that had not been told, uh, whether it's in our history books, whether it's in our churches, or in our kind of uh, ministry context, and certainly within kind of American Christian circles, these are truths that have not been told. Now, the play of words, I thought our, our, our editor, Al, really deserves a lot of credit for, for putting this together, the idea of settling, uh, you know, the whole idea of settler colonialism. Mm. that this nation was invaded or this, this uh, landmass was invaded by European colonialists who were settler colonialists. And so they came to settle lands that were not theirs. Uh, they weren't discoverers of the land as well, you know, as the book uh, tries to unpack, but they were settlers of the land um, and kind of interlopers in the land. And so the idea of uh, unsettling um, is kind of a play on words there as well, kind of talking about settler colonialism and unsettling that needs to occur in order for these truths to be told. I like a good play on words, and I'm really sad that I didn't realize that before you said it. Um, although now that you say <laughs> it, it is self-evident. Because <laughs> in the back of my mind, uh, the last time that I heard about this text was from Mark, 
And I think he kept calling it truth be told. And every time that we would email back and forth as well, either way, the history of our country, uh, once you get past the, you know, McLaughlin Hill approved literature for eighth grade history class is, is crazy. So I want to begin with right towards the beginning of the book. You talk about, and, and, and if it's all right, I'd like to quote a few places. I, I actually don't remember when the book is sure. out, um, but by the time the book is out, I won't be, I won't be plagiarizing this. So okay. there's a part where y'all talk about the power of metaphors and you mm. talk about George Lakoff and assert that metaphors, you know, a partic- are a form of communication and that they impact the formation of social reality and the institutions mm-hmm. that function in that society. And so I want you to break those two apart. So what do we mean when we mean like a social metaphor impacting social reality? Like what does that actually mean for someone not engaged in that type of thought process? Sure. So I'm trying to engage um, how social reality comes into being and what is the social reality, the cultural milieu that we live in. And uh, there's significant work on this in sociology circles. Probably the, the, the landmark work was by Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman, where they talk about three different factors that form social reality. And one of the key factors, and the language I'm using is a little bit different from Berger and Luckman's language, what Berger and Luckman call internalization, um, I use the word narratives. And narratives are the stories, the metaphors, the imagination that gets embedded or embodied or internalized within our society and within the individuals that we play out over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, And so I use the example that systems and structures might actually come and go at times, like a system and structure of slavery. And then once slavery as an institution is broken down, it's replaced by another institution, in this case, Jim Crow. And then even when Jim Crow is torn down, it's replaced by another institution, the new Jim Crow. So you have three systems that are operating essentially the same way. They are oppressive towards people of color, particularly African-Americans. So you have these systems that you thought you were overcoming, you thought you were tearing down, you thought you were breaking down. But what you didn't deal with were the narratives that were fueling these systems. And so what I point out is that we can keep tearing down these systems, but if you don't deal with the fuel that drove these systems in the first place, what I identify as narratives, um, you're going to end up rebuilding the system or reworking the system over and over again. And so how are narratives formed is the question that's being asked here in this particular chapter. Narratives are formed through the social imagination. Narratives are formed, and how, are, how is imagination formed? Imagination is formed through metaphors, through embodied experiences. And so that, to me, was a very interesting concept that George Lakoff uh, and other kind of communication experts have, have been dealing with, which is... Um, we don't always operate out of self-interest. We sometimes operate out of embodied experiences and emotions and feelings that become a part of our narrative, imagination, and worldview. And so sometimes it, it goes beyond rationality. Sometimes it goes beyond kind of uh, human logic um, because it has become so embedded, embedded and embodied in who we are. Um, to some extent, it explains what I call the Trump evangelical effect, uh, which is that certain narratives that become so embedded within the evangelical circles that it was very hard to even escape some of the logic, some of the rationality, because these emotions have been so deeply embedded. 
So part of the questions we're asking is, what are these narratives? What are these embedded metaphors and embodied experiences that have shaped American Christianity and trace the history of the doctrine of discovery to show how profoundly this dysfunctional imagination of the doctrine of discovery, which essentially is white supremacy or European supremacy, um, how that has lived its way out in American society and American Christianity. One of the questions I'm always asking myself is if I'm calling, and I often call on this podcast for growth and for the church to grow and be more prophetic, like do just do it better like if, we, if you can't, like be more Christ-like. But right. at the risk of becoming the next institution that then takes that power that you vote, you know, that you've, you've taken as you, as you grow uh, and become the next mm-hmm. institution that oppresses. And so I don't want to mix metaphors yeah. and I may be mixing a metaphor, but I want to drill down a bit to what you were talking about there with that Trump. What did you call it? Trump Trump evangelicalism? No, that's not what you said. Right. Um, maybe that is what yeah, you said. Trump evangelicals. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by like that? You, you talked about the logic of that. Like, what do you mean the logic of that? Sure. So if you look at, for example, the history of evangelicalism, and this is actually not in the book, it's in some of my more recent academic work, and hopefully this will be published in my next book um, about evangelicalism. Um, I worked on a book about African-American evangelicalism and the way African-American evangelicalism was rejected by the larger evangelical movement. And um, when, what, I'm, what I'm looking at there is um, the way the definition of evangelicalism has changed. So that's what I mean by systems and structures come and go. What defined, what was the boundaries around evangelical Christianity? And earlier on in its history, if you go back, and I'm talking about American evangelicalism and its unique iterations, if you go back to, you know, the reformed evangelical movement that you could trace all the way back to Jonathan Edwards and say that, that was theologically driven. Uh, it was a theology that some might agree with, some might say, it's, you know, it's not exactly what I believe in, but it was a theological boundary. It was around reformed theology. It was around human depravity and God's uh, 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 grace. And, you know, these are very key theological markers. Um, and then you see this in kind of the neo-evangelical movement. You certainly see it in fundamentalism. Uh, and so even if you may not de- agree with every little point that's a theological definition of evangelicalism, it was at least a theological discussion. Uh, but these systems and structures come and go. And what happened was that new systems began to be formed that was not necessarily theological in nature, but more social, political, and cultural in nature. And so in the 70s, when you see the rise of evangelicalism in kind of the social cultural arena, uh, you see much more politicized evangelicalism. You see the emergence of the right, uh, religious right. Uh, you see kind of the time of conservative politics with conservative theology. Uh, you see kind of, um, a Republican religious right base for evangelical, evangelical as being the base for that group. So what you're seeing is these systems are being replaced and new systems are taking its place. And so Trump evangelicalism is another system that took over from the previous system. So you had a system called the religious right and the religious right had certain boundaries. It wasn't necessarily theological or social political. It was about prayer in schools. It was about you know, uh, opposition to same-sex marriage. It was about anti-abortion. These are all, you know, uh, markers of what defined a evangelical in the 80s and 90s and 2000s in particular. Uh, What was interesting about the Trump evangelicals is that a lot of those things didn't really matter anymore. Uh, Prayer in schools, nobody talked about that for decades. 
Uh, if you remember, I don't think people do, but in the 26, lead up to the 2016 election, when the Republican Party had their debates, I think it was about the seventh or eighth debate that finally talked about abortion. And so what was the driving system that drove evangelicals to Trump? Well, a lot of it was anti-immigration. A lot of it was anti-Obama. A lot of it was anti-Muslim. There was a kind of a new system, and people had just kind of still bought into the system. So uh, what you see is that systems come and go, but the underlying narrative that drives these systems continue along their merry way. And these metaphors become so embedded that we actually act in contradiction to our self-interest. We actually act in contradiction to our are what we claim is our value system. I mean, and everybody's been talking about this, that how can we support the factors around this president? You know, the lies, the manipulation, the affairs. I mean, you name it, he's done it in terms of what is not a Christian behavior. And as we've also talked about in the media and in other places, Mm -hmm. the, the evangelical support has unwavered. I mean, it has been rock, rock solid. It's the base out of which we'll, we'll go into the 2020 election. And so new systems kept taking the place, but these underlying narratives that fuel these systems have actually never been confronted. So this is a little bit outside of the scope of the book, uh, but what I'll argue for is that what you're seeing is, no matter what the system is, if you don't deal with the underlying narrative, these systems will keep playing itself out in new forms or in different forms, and we'll lose ourselves in the process, as I think it's clearly happening with the Trump evangelical movement. We've lost ourselves. We've lost who we are as an American Christian uh, community. So what you end up having is the narrative of American exceptionalism, yeah. the narrative of white supremacy. These narratives go along their merry way, and we keep saying, oh, we're changing the system. Oh, we've got new leaders. Oh, we've got, you know, we're, we're trying to do different things. No, actually, we're not. <laughs> Things really haven't changed all that much because the narrative has not been dealt with. And that's what the book is trying to address and saying, mm-hmm. what are these embedded narratives? There's so many of them, but the doctrine of discovery, which again is a reflection of kind of a white exceptionalism, white supremacy, that narrative has held in American history all throughout. I mean, it goes back, you know, it yeah. predates American history. Yeah. But the sense of American exceptionalism and the sense of kind of white supremacy has been a narrative that has been deeply embedded in our kind of worldview and in our kind of narrative worldview. Well, that was my next question. I, actually, I, I have a follow-up question, and then I will get back to that, because I do yeah. have a question on the doctrine of discovery. I often hear, yeah. and I want to make sure I phrase this correctly, because I 100% agree with you, especially about Trump evangelicalism. I, I genuinely think it is damaging the church, possibly irreparably. And for those that listen to the mm-hmm. show, I don't really talk about politics a lot, but I'm I'm happy to say that. Like, I think it is genuinely mm-hmm. damaging, uh, I'll use a bad church word, uh, the testimony of the faith, for lack mm-hmm. of a better way mm-hmm. to say it. But do you feel like often the inverse of that coin, so if Trump is the tail side, the head side would be the exact opposite? Is, is equally damaging at times? Because I feel like we always pick on whoever's in power uh, and then we forget mm-hmm. to talk about it. Do you think that or, or no? Well, that's one of the things that we kind of address in the book, that um, you know, it's not a political party issue. It's not necessarily a uh, left-right Democrat-Republican issue because American exceptionalism, this kind of sense of white superiority or white centrality, is actually evident on both sides, both sides of the aisle. You know, you, you have a different angle on American exceptionalism, but it's an exceptionalism in either case. 
So, you know, um, and this is actually more Mark's line, but, you know, I, I, I stand behind it as well, that what you had in 2016, the election was Trump saying, let's make America great by mm. going back to certain time periods. Uh, and Hillary saying America is already great. And you saw that at the convention, the speeches that were given at the convention. Mm-hmm. The Republicans say, we got to bring greatness back. we got to bring American exceptionalism back. And um, the Democrats saying, no, American exception is already in place here. Now, I might be more in agreement with the Democrats' view because not, you know, other parts of the platform, but the idea that American greatness can come from its diversity, whereas the other side, you might say, no, they're actually seeing American exceptionalism in kind of a white American, you know, identity. And so on that level, I might be more sympathetic to the Democratic perspective. But the underlying narrative that drives both dysfunctional parties is American exception. And so that is really antithetical to the gospel. Uh, The belief that a, a single nation in this day and age can be the chosen nation when the scriptures only testify to Israel as a chosen nation, and that, you know, arguably is for that time period within the scriptures, uh, there's actually zero indication, zero uh, uh, idea that America, the United States of America, is the exceptional chosen nation of God. But again, these narratives have played itself out in so many ways that it doesn't matter what party you belong to, the idea of American exceptionalism is going to find its way into the rhetoric. So I want to give a bit of context. So the doctrine of discovery is something for, uh, you know, I've, 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 I've talked about with Mark in the past, although well before this book mm-hmm. was written, although I think he was working on it. I mean, the last time mm-hmm. I talked to them, he had just published a long form blog piece about Abraham Lincoln, uh, February mm-hmm. of 2018, I think is when he published it, somewhere around there. So that's kind of where he was when I spoke with him. So, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because we talk about that in depth, you know, with the papal bulls and that type of stuff uh, in that episode. But I do want to focus a bit on Christian empire and the term Mm. Christendom, because the way that y'all talk about that term Christendom, when I've talked or thought about Christendom, I've always thought of like the body of believers, like all of the Christians, the church could also be Mm -hmm. the Christendom. But that's not really the way that y'all approach Christendom here. Can you kind of go back in time, millennia ago, and kind of break apart for listeners where the church hitched its wagon in a wedding ring to empire. Yeah. So the idea of Christendom, I mean, you're going to get, uh, you're right, there's going to be kind of multiple uses of this term. So actually one of the more intriguing uses by Philip Jenkins in his book, The Next Christendom, and he's using that term the way you described it, which is whole of Christianity, um, whole of Christendom. Uh, but you gotta remember, you know, the word D-O-M there at the end of Christendom is kingdom, you know, dominion. And so the idea of that would even when kind of the root word of the word Christendom would be kind of the amalgamation of Christianity and kingdom slash empire. And so that's where you point out that, um, where did that intersection or blending or, or bleeding together of church and state of Christianity and empire, uh, where did that begin to happen? And most obviously point towards Constantine. You know, you have centuries of oppression of the church by uh, the state. Uh, the Roman Empire is is brutal. It is oppression and persecution of the church. But then you get a highly political move. You know, this is all, this is arguable, but you get a highly political move by a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine, uh, who kind of declares. 
um, you know, he's a Christian now, and Roman, the Roman Empire is now a Christian state, and he's going to go out and conquer under the banner of Christendom. And that is where many point to this kind of conflation of church and state, this conflation of uh, Christianity and empire. Uh, in our book, what Mark and I uh, uh, worked through is that that's, that was not a Christian move. It was not a, it was not a move of the Holy Spirit of God. This is a, a satanic move in some sense, uh, that this conflation of church and state, this kind of, uh, seeking of empire by the church. And the example that we give is of Eusebius, the, the church historian, who is talking about the martyrdom of the church. But then when Constantine is kind of emerging into power, he kind of hitches the church's wagon to Constantine's power and uh, sees Constantine as kind of saving the church out of its persecution, which is kind of interesting, right? Because that, that shouldn't be the role of the state. That should be the role of Jesus, you know, to save the church. And so you're seeing kind of early on this buying into the narrative that a state could save the church. Hmm. or that the state will help the church, uh, when actually throughout most of its early history, the church was surviving by identifying itself over and against the state. And so what you see in the rise of Constantine and the, the Holy Roman Empire and the way that the, um, uh, that the Roman Empire kind of under uh, the Edict of Milan and, and under Constantine embraces this idea of a Christian nation, and that narrative, uh, it becomes embedded in kind of Western uh, society, and it becomes a part of the storyline for Western culture. Um, what's interesting to me is where that line, and it, obviously we try to trace that line through to uh, to uh, to the doctrine of discovery, uh, so that this mindset of believing that a state could be in some sense, ex an expression of the church or vice versa, and that there's kind of this blurring of the lines between the church and the state allows for the Pope to say to the state, in this case, the Spain and the Portugal, you are now the agents of God. Your destruction, your enslavement, uh, your genocide even is now as agents of God. And so that becomes one of the most dysfunctional expressions of Christendom. But uh, it doesn't just happen in the 15th century with the Doctrine of Discovery. It traces all the way back to Constantine and the emergence of the idea of a Christendom, a Christian kingdom here on Earth. So I don't quite understand, and this is something that I've, I don't think I've ever asked out loud. If the early church, and from what I understand, was an entirely, they were more focused on, you know, the way, quote, the way, uh, of, of, of self-sacrificial love, like martyr, just, just an entirely different version of the church than what we have today, and something I think hopefully one day we can be called mm -hmm. back to. How did it, how did how did it get conscripted? Because I can't see, I mean, people have always been, or at least they are now, so quickly to brand people as heretics. So how did something like that become the status quo? Because I feel like there should have been a large church body, and this is me with no historical learning at all on this. I feel like there should have been a large cry of the church saying, 
No, 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 Constantine. And no, 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 Augustine. We don't do this. This is not what we do. Was there not that? And if so, how was it kind of quelled? Yeah, I mean, you can see that throughout history, I mean, you know, I mean, I can look at it from two angles. I can look at it from God's sovereignty in that through it all, God does retain the remnant. God is never unfaithful in his sustaining of the church. And even if there is this kind of um, uh, a falling out uh, by the church and then falling into the temptation, you know, mm-hmm. the, ironically, it is the exact mm-hmm. temptation that Jesus resisted uh, from Satan in the scriptures. Uh, but this kind of falling into the temptation, God is still faithful to retain uh, a remnant of sorts. Uh, and, and, you know, um, there's actually a wonderful book by Vince Bantu that's coming out soon that talks about the history of the global church that goes all the way back to the first century. So actually, if you can, have uh, uh, Vince on your show to talk about his new book, um, where he talks about kind of African Christianity and non-Western Christianity and how there was a remnant of faithfulness there as well. Uh, and so, you know, on that kind of big picture level, we can always say uh, God is faithful to continue to sustain and to and to continue to work through his church. And the Protestant Reformation is a reflection of that the non-Western European church uh, as a reflection of that. And so, you know, on that level, we can continue to say God's sovereign rule over the church. Do we call that into question? I, I, don't, I don't think we should. Um, and then on the other level, uh, this maybe points to what we see in Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit does truly fall upon all the people. It's not just to falls on Peter. It doesn't just fall on the apostles and the, and the, and the twelve. It falls on all the people, that, all the believers that have gathered. And so I do believe that maybe that's one of the way God sustains, that there is a faithful remnant that is oftentimes what is what we would see people on in the grassroots, people in their local churches. Uh, and that's kind of my hope even for the present reality, that even as we're seeing this, what I would argue, some kind of, and uh, uh, stupidity around these really diseased, dysfunctional narratives that play in American society, um, yeah. we still have the faithful remnant in the local churches. We still have those that are having conversations like this. Uh, we still have, you know, students in seminary that, I, that I'm uh, privileged to, to work with um, who understand that this is not the way the church should be. Um, the question is, do we just get power? Do these kind of folks who see something wrong here get more power? Or do we seek new communities and new expressions of the faith? Or we dig the old expressions of faith, maybe, but create communities and create expressions that demonstrate that the meta narratives that are dysfunctional and causing so much pain uh, are not the true narratives. So we create new narratives or we express the old narratives, the, the true narratives. And um, I think God in, in his faithfulness always has that remnant that continues to try to seek out a faithful witness. And But sometimes it's not the loudest voice in the room, you know, uh, because if it became a loud voice, then it would become, it would get caught up in the same system again. And it would be as functional as the old system because it would fit into the trap narrative of, you know, one person who can speak for everybody, um, you know, key leaders who can do all the things for us. Um, so in, in some sense, the fact that we don't have 
an anti-Trump in the Christian community mm-hmm. or an anti-Franklin Graham or Robert Jeffries in the Christian community, that might actually be a good thing, that there is no one or two voices who are like superstars, you know, who are getting a national public audience. Maybe that's not a bad thing, that we actually are hopefully the remnant are living this out in their local church in ways that provide a counter-narrative to what is the dominant narrative in power. There's a part of your book, and I wrote it down, although I don't quite, I can't, I usually write down page numbers, and so I can't find it. I've been searching a little bit off and on. <laughs> you talk a bit about, like, my self-perception emerges, and by proxy, the church that I'm a part of, because I'm going to bring my lens as a, as a person to my church from a dysfunctional theology. And then I also think mm-hmm. that y'all argue that, you know, that dysfunctional theology was brought here as a European mindset. And so what do you mean by a dysfunctional theology? You know, uh, my, that influence comes from my, my doctoral work with uh, Willie Jennings, who was my doctoral advisor at Duke. He's now at Yale. And, you know, in his book, Christian Imagination, he talks about, he actually used the phrase diseased imagination. And I'm just kind of riffing on that uh, concept. And it goes back to the idea that um, how does our social reality, how does our worldview, how do our narratives get formed? It comes out of our imagination. Now, by imagination, I'm not saying making stuff up, you know, kind of fairy tales and things. Uh, imagination, used in this context, theological imagination, social imagination, is um, the possibility of the way the world can be the way you organize thoughts and ideas around the world. So it's very much around narratives, worldview, even metaphors come into play here. And so the idea is that if we have a diseased imagination and we externalize that diseased imagination that comes from our messed up metaphors, our messed up uh, narratives, then we're going to end up forming dysfunctional diseased theological frameworks and theological imagination. So that's where the kind of the baseline of that definition comes from. That is there a place where we have formed our theology and shaped our theological categories and our theological discourse, and it emerged out of a diseased imagination, emerged out of dysfunctional metaphors, emerged out of sinful tendencies? And that's a very important question to ask, I think, for any theologian, historian, academic, or pastor to say, I don't have it all right. And so therefore, there are times when my imagination, my theology, my social reality is going to have some sinful aspects to them. And so one of the questions to ask is, well, let's identify. Let's identify the places where theology has gone off the rails. Let's identify the places where our theology comes out of a diseased imagination rather than out of the scriptures. Uh, and that's one of the things we're pointing out, that the doctrine of discovery at its time was considered good theology. Mm. And obviously, in retrospect, we look back and say, whoa, wait a minute, where did that come from? But I'm asking the question, well, how does that dysfunctional theology get replayed over and over and over and over and over again? And so we can look back and say, doctrine of discovery, oh, that's terrible. But I'm saying that the narrative that drove the doctrine of discovery, the imagination that drove the dysfunctional theological framework of the doctrine of discovery, is still playing out in our churches today. It's still playing out in American society today. So I think, you know, as an academic, as pastors, as uh, church leaders, uh, one of the most important things we can ask is where are the places our theology is broken? Where are the places our theology is not quite coming from the place of Scripture, 
but it's actually coming from a diseased imagination. I think I might have said this in the last podcast, but it's good to reiterate here about, to me, the distinction, I don't think this is in this book, it's in my previous writing, the distinction is between truth pursued and truth possessed. What something like the Doctor of the Discovery does, and what kind of the rigid, bounded set barriers we have around our theology does, is help us or make us assume, or allow us to assume, that we own the truth, that we possess the truth. And uh, if I look at history, every time a person has said, I own the truth, or I possess the truth, it's led to tyranny. Mm. Joseph Stalin owned the truth. Adolf Hitler owned the truth. Andrew Jackson owned the truth. That's why it's interesting when political leaders say, I know what's best. I know what to do. That kind of ownership of truth. I alone know how to fix this. That always scares me. <laughs> mm. uh, no matter who, Democrat, Republican, obviously our current president says that over and over again. And my wisdom, I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that knows how to do this. Trust so me. that kind of language always scares me. Yeah, yeah, that's right, because I know what I'm doing. So that kind of, that truth possessed, I don't think is really the way we should be doing theology. Truth pursued, on the other hand, to me makes more sense. It's the idea that we're trying to get to the truth. Now, none of us own the truth. Because if we did, we would be God, right? That was the kind of the basic sin of Genesis 2, wasn't it? Wasn't it? That uh, the assumption that Adam and Eve could own the truth and possess it in their mm. in the fruit that they ate. I mean, you know, that was the that's that's a very very basic premise of original sin. And so the idea that you can own that truth and that nobody else could actually you know call you out on that that's a very dysfunctional theology. Uh, but the fact that you can pursue the truth and go after truth. That, to me, feels more like what the Scripture seems to testify to. And so the doctrine of discovery was a dysfunctional theological framework imagination that was a owned truth theology, and that was very dysfunctional. One of the questions to ask is, what are the assumptions of possessed truth that you own the truth that is playing itself out over and over again now to the point that it leads to a dysfunctional theology? trying to find well, I have I have a quite yeah, I found the quote um yeah there is a part of the book on dysfunctional theology and the impact on it and the bed that that is made of you know taking a theological doctrine of discovery and then amplifying that to an empire and then just basically killing mm-hmm. people because that's I'll use a lyric from one of my favorite songs from propaganda which is you know that's my land I licked it you know like like a second or third mm. grade mentality I don't know if you've heard that song or not the, the lyric is something about blah 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 we have a we have a destiny to manifest because that's my land I licked it mm. um, and in your mm-hmm. lands you're mm-hmm. now trespassing or something like that I'm I'm not a rap yeah, artist wow. and he, it's a very good song <laughs> if I can find it I'll send it to you it's it's a very good song okay. However, there is a quote about uh, from Richard Platt, Richard Pratt, and then just for context, yeah. he is the one that basically created the Indian boarding schools to uh, what, is, what did right. he say? Save the man, uh, destroy the savage, or something like that. I don't think I'm saying that quite right, Still but savage, something to that. Yeah. Um, but then there's a mm-hmm. quote that I literally got confused on, and so I'm hoping you can help me make some sense of it. So sure. one of you says Dietrich Bonhoeffer examines this approach to sin. In creation and fall, Bonhoeffer posits that man's limit is in the middle of his existence, not the edge. The limit which we look for on the edge is the limit of his condition, of his technology, of his possibilities. The limit in the middle is the limit of his reality, of his true existence. I read that about 20 times. I don't know what that (laughs) means. Can you tell me what that means? 
<laughs> sure. I mean, I had to throw Bonhoeffer in there somewhere. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Bonhoeffer is going to be fun because, as, as you probably know, Bonhoeffer is used by everyone differently. Mm-hmm. So someone like Aaron Metaxas can make Bonhoeffer be whatever he wants him to be, kind of a right-wing, you know, fascist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and others take Bonhoeffer different ways. I, I, my, my teacher of Bonhoeffer was actually Jay Carter uh, at Duke, and he said that he went to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, very fundamentalist conservative school, uh, Southern Methodist University, uh, which was a more mainline liberal school, and then he went to UVA for three graduate uh, degrees. And all three of them loved Bonhoeffer. And you is a secular school. All three schools loved Bonhoeffer, and all three used Bonhoeffer very differently. So <laughs> I'll preface my remarks by actually saying, you know, when we talk about Bonhoeffer, you have to give a lot of latitude for where people are going to go. People are going to go in a lot of different directions. The way I take that quote is to understand, because that's the context of, again, the, the context of the book is creation of fall. It's about uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of humanity, and that what the, the great sin that Adam and Eve committed was not actually, you know, kind of disobeying God in that God said, no, we're, we're disobeying God in, in kind of the, maybe the more rote, mundane sense of the word, uh, or even the act itself of eating something that was forbidden. Uh, it was the attempt by Adam and Eve to transgress and trans uh, uh, go across the limits that God had set in their humanity, right? And so God, as God, sets a limit for humanity. Human beings in their hubris, in their pride, in their sinful nature, what becomes the sinful nature, says, I will not stay within those boundaries. I will move beyond the limit. And so humanity was created to exist within the limit. And this is, again, my interpretation of Bonhoeffer here. Um, and the act of taking that fruit, uh, the forbidden fruit, was to transgress and move beyond that limit. And so what dysfunctional theology does is it transgresses the limit. God did not put humanity here on earth to act like gods over other people, to say in that doctrine of the image of God, I alone have it, I possess it, You people over there in Africa, you people over there in North America, the natives, you don't have it. That's Mm -hmm. the ultimate act of transgressing the limit, where you take a gift of God, the image of God, and now you own that, and now you operate out of that. Uh, You transgress the limit of, well, God gave you the image of God. God created you in his image for a purpose, not to lord it over others, not to say, I have it, others don't but to actually live in community, actually to love one another as, you know, as, as those who are made in the image of God, as uh, careful one another as those who are made in the image of God. And so what Bonhoeffer is pointing towards is the opposite, I would argue, of the doctrine of discovery, which is the dysfunctional expression of a human being clearly transgressing the limit to say, I own the truth, I own the image of God, and therefore I can act in this way towards another person, Bonhoeffer would say, you are transgressing the limit. I want to end at least with maybe this one, and if we have time for one more. Um, but there is sure. there's, there are two chapters at the end, and they both deal with trauma, 
One is the trauma inflicted, and then the other is the trauma. The PTSD is a result of the bombshell of that trauma. Like, and and the way that I read PTSD in that, what I'm hearing there is the ultimate ramifications for my children. So this trauma is 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 Mm -hmm. is affecting me, but that PTSD is going to affect the next generation, and. I, I, yeah. I know based from your story from when we spoke last as well as Mark, like you both have mm-hmm. had trauma related to race and all mm-hmm. those tensions. And so how does trauma fit into this doctrine of discovery and the church? And then what do we do with that? Because I think when the church yeah. has the mirror pointed back at it, I don't know how to fix it. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, even if I can admit yeah. that, even if we could all tomorrow admit what needed to be fixed. Yeah. The, system, the systematic part of the institution is not built to run on that diesel fuel. We're built to run on kerosene yeah. or whatever. So how does trauma yeah. kind yeah. of relate to, to this? You know, I, what I'm hoping with those two chapters, and Mark might have a different opinion on this, what I'm hoping is that a, um, a psychologist, researcher, a PhD in psychology would take that chapter and really run with it. Uh, there is another interesting book that's coming out, uh, Sheila Rowe. I did the foreword for her book. And she's a licensed psychiatrist who looks at the issue of race through the lens of trauma. It's brilliant. I, I would really strongly suggest that book as well. But um, the idea of trauma and the role of trauma, especially in kind of a, a racialized history, is that the two things that I wanted to point out in that is, one, the role of trauma in a complex way that is generational. And I think we talked about the last time that, you know, there's actually now kind of clinical studies done on uh, the way trauma plays itself out multi-generationally. There's a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, that Mm -hmm. slavery has had a traumatic impact multiple generations later. And there was actually a clinical study that was done recently about kind of multi-generational impact of the Holocaust, that grandchildren of Holocaust survivors or Holocaust victims are still experiencing the trauma from, you know, two or three generations back. By the way, this is interesting, but... The, uh, the Amazon TV show Transparent, which is supposed to be about kind of a transgender community, mm-hmm. it actually, in the final season, really does some really interesting stuff with Judaism. And you see in kind of children, I mean, the children of grandparents who were in the Holocaust, they're in their 30s, feel the effect of the Holocaust, you know, three generations down. So, I mean, you know, if you don't want to watch it for kind of the trans story, a really interesting religious motifs are coming out, especially on Judaism and the third generational impact of Holocaust on a third generation of Jewish survivors. So, you know, uh, what it's shown is that stress and trauma like genocide and Holocaust don't just have one generational impact. It has multiple generational impacts. So could slavery have that impact? Genocide of natives, boarding schools. Certainly, we've seen, we've seen that in kind of the Khmer Rouge massacre, uh, where survivors and their children and grandchildren of the Cambodian massacre are still feeling the effects of it, mm. and certainly in the Holocaust as well. So I think uh, that's something to consider of kind of this generational, multi, uh, kind of social systemic narrative-based type of change. So this goes against the idea that you know racism is just a personal thing, it's an individual thing. No, it's not just only a structural systemic thing. It could have generational effect and trauma could have a generational effect. Hmm. Uh, but the other part that was really kind of interesting for, for Mark and I to kind of work through, and again, I'm, I'm hoping that a trained psychiatrist or a PhD psychiatrist, psychiatry could maybe pick up on this, the idea of the victimizer is also a suffering PTSD. And this 
With this, we went more anecdotal. Uh, there is some emerging research on this. I believe it's coming out of Brigham Young University, and there's a couple of other places where there is some emerging research, but it's not comprehensive yet. So, you know, if there's others who can kind of pick up on this. Uh, but the idea that the victimizer also experiences trauma. Now, anecdotally, what you see is that sometimes it's the drone operators that have PTSD. You know, they just drop the bomb on an unknown village somewhere and they leave that bunker shell-shocked. Now, they never experienced physical trauma. They never actually were physically harmed by what was going on. They were the ones that actually got the bomb, but they still feel a trauma. Mm. And so could it be that the victimizers could also feel a trauma? And so what we're talking about is an entire nation that has been traumatized, an entire nation that has been profoundly wounded, both victims and victimizers. And is there a need... And that's where, you know, uh, practices like lament are so critical, because lament, clearly in the scriptures, lament is one of the ways that Israel deals with trauma. Now, lamentation is the is this incredible lament experience after the most traumatic experience that Israel could experience, the fall of Jerusalem. And so I would love for others to kind of pick up on those two chapters and go a little further with, because I believe, you know, we kind of, you know, kind of scratch the surface on that issue. Uh, but I do believe that there is a profound trauma and people are acting out of trauma and even the victimizers are acting out of trauma. And so what we're seeing is a traumatized nation that have different ways of you know, experiencing trauma, the victim versus the victimizer but it's still traveling on the loss. Those two chapters, I really liked them a lot. It was new information for me. And mm. yeah, I don't, I don't know where I sit with it yet, but I hadn't yeah. really considered that. And honestly, uh, Professor, I, I thought about it more than America because it's not just America that has really wronged and treated indigenous tribes very poorly. Mm-hmm. I mean, New Zealand, Australia, like yeah. it's not just yeah. America. Like it is... Oh yeah. It is a worldwide trauma and that's just a powder keg of of oh yeah of things but I'm not qualified to have that conversation um but that's what it made me think of as as yeah. I've and really part of that is because I've I've started to have listeners from New Zealand in recent yeah. years and and they've asked me about it and I was like you know I don't know anything about that but that sounds really familiar you know with with what I'm used to so I was in Melbourne um I think it was the last year or two years ago, um, they had this incredible conference where they're trying to bring in kind of Euro-Australian Christians with uh, indigenous tribes. Hmm. It was one of the most moving conferences I've ever been to where they really made an effort to affirm and lift up uh, indigenous Christian communities as leaders. They were kind of central to almost all the conversations. I was coming in as an outsider, but you know, the worship was led by uh, indigenous uh, Aboriginal peoples. So, you know, I, I would love to see more of these kind of conversations occur. Uh, certainly New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we've seen these kinds of kind of settler, settler colonial impact. And, you know, there, there, there are these common threads. So um, I know that uh, there's a scholar in uh, Melbourne, uh, Mark Brett, who has actually done some writing on the Doctrine of Discovery as well. So um, there, these themes carry through kind of any place where European settlers have displaced and, you know, genocide of Native communities. A lot of these same themes are coming through New Zealand, Australia, Canada. How do you spell his last name? Is that Mark? Brett, B-R-E-T-T. Oh, Brett. Okay. Is it Brett? Okay. It's either Brett or Brett. <laughs> and he's at the Melbourne uh, University. 
uh, a biblical scholar who's done some great work on Dr. I'm going to look, look into his stuff. Um, I love I love new mm-hmm. voices. So I've written down all three of those names. Although Vince's, I still don't know how to say his last name either, but I'll get that from you in a minute. There is a lot in this book, and we literally barely scratched the surface, and we don't have any more time. <laughs> and so I want to give you the last yeah. word. Like, if I miss something that you want to make certain that people, as they begin to engage with the book, if I miss something at all that you're like, no, as you read it, keep this in the back of your mind. Like, this is what you need to have sitting on your shoulder as you read through it. Yeah. What would you say? I mean, I would, I would argue for the larger themes. I mean, there's a lot of information in there, a lot of content, a lot of kind of historical information that you know, is probably going to be new. But I would, I would keep the eye on, on the bigger theme around where did all of this come from? How did this happen? And the, the dysfunctional imagination and narratives that are so deeply embedded that they keep playing itself out over and over and over again. So, you know, we're going to have some conversations and, you know, some people are going to have some like minutiae here and there. Well, I don't interpret this passage this way. I don't think you should look back on the history this way. That's fine. Uh, what I'm, uh, what Mark and I are asking is, these large narratives that have been so profoundly embedded in American society that keeps playing itself over and over again, how are they manifesting itself now? So um, that's what I would keep in the back of the mind. Um, how are all of this, the storyline, contributing to this very large uh, 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 narrative, uh, theological imagination, dysfunctional imagination? How did this all come to pass? And, um, and maybe begin to ask, well, what does it mean to begin to dismantle that? Yeah. What does it mean to create counter narratives to speak against these narratives? Well, plug the places. I will plug uh, Mark so you can get a hold of Mark, uh, since he's not here to speak for himself, at wirelesshogan.com, I believe, is where you can get everything yeah. related to Mark. But where do people go to engage with you a bit and to learn more about what you're doing, possibly grab some of those other texts that you were talking about? Sure, you could also look up Mark Charles 2020. Um, and there's uh, I dropped the ball on that. Mark. I dropped the ball. I'm sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably where he wants more people to go to now. But, you know, I'm, I'm not really a social media savvy guy, but at Prof Ra at Twitter, and uh, I have a face page, face page, <laughs> Facebook page that people can look up. Um, I've maxed out on my friends, but I, I'm trying to get a little more activity on the on a, on a page that I'm working on, but I'm, I'm not very good at it. But Twitter and um, and Facebook are the two places to kind of follow. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I'm really not good at social media, mm-hmm. mostly to keep up with my teenage kids. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I do post stuff in there, in there uh, every once in a while. So Twitter and Facebook are, are a good way to follow. <laughs> I like that. I'm not good at technology. I'm not good at social media or the face page. I like, that makes me that makes, <laughs> <laughs> that makes me that, that pretty much sums it up for me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, um, I, very, I very much appreciate you coming back on. Pleasure as always. Love to do it again. Let's plan it for another 18 months that seems to be our cadence <laughs> so let's do that that sounds perfect that sounds perfect quiet now i hear your voice you're beckoning my jaded heart let down your walls and come away with me I have spent a lot of time since reading the book and since talking with Professor about uh, considering social reality 
and how those truths matter. I spent some time in D.C. with my son, actually, and I just kept walking past and having conversations with people, random people, about so many things and asking them questions about this book. And I will tell you, that conversation is needed. This book, I think, is needed, but the conversation itself is needed because I think, and uh, if I can ever get Mark on, I think Mark says something all the time that we struggle to have conversations like this at length because we don't have a shared history. Like we don't have a shared narrative. Everybody is coming from things from a different approach and nobody quite hears each other. We air quotes hear each other, but we don't hear, actually listen to each other because we don't come from a shared memory. We come from a shared mindset. And so I think texts like this and some of the texts that uh, Professor Sung Chong talked about at the end there are needed. I strongly encourage you to go out and grab this book. It is scripting, and I think it's needed. You can find the music in today's episode at the link for Can I Say This at Church, the Spotify playlist there, as well as the Apple playlist and any other playlist that maybe someone has made, as well as in the show notes. I cannot wait to talk to you next week. I hope as we enter into the holiday season here in the West that we treat each other kindly, that we have conversations with our family and our friends at tables, and that we hear each other that we show compassion with one another, that we can maybe table the bickering and the arguing and just love on one another. And if we can't speak without bickering, that maybe we just do something else. We go outside and play. We tell stories about great-grandma and great-grandpa. We find a way to develop new communities in our families. As we enter into the holiday season, know that you're loved, you've been loved, and that you are the beloved of the divine. I'll talk with you next week. I am loved. You embrace me as I am. I am loved. You welcome me. Love me though I'm